Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Monday, October the 25th, and we gather around the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles as we go back to an Old Testament book, the book of Ecclesiastes. We know this book is a book of wisdom, and we start to look at this book um, from a a 30,000 feet up type of range uh, to try to look at it from major themes. And of course, as we look at this book of wisdom, we see the who, what, where, when, and why of this wonderful book. And I find myself continually going back to Ecclesiastes because it's kind of like a grandpa reflecting on his life, pointing them not with some kind of little pithy advice statements, but showing them the most important thing, showing them the Lord. And of course, we will see and have the preacher give us Christ when Solomon speaks the word for the gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's Word this morning, we have the joy of having back with us Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Oh, it is great to be here. It is good, good, good. It is good. Uh, Pastor, tell us what's going on for you, your family, and the the work of the saints at Redeemer. Well, I I don't remember if the last time we talked, I I had just recovered from COVID, but uh, Mm -hmm. that's now in the past. Yeah. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And we're we're still working with mask mandates in the state of of New Mexico, of course. So we're still, uh, you know, in the midst of all this uh, COVID, uh, uh, just pandemonia here in this state. Well, and that's, you know, it's all something that we, we pray about continuously and, and pray that the Lord will lead us. How's your family doing? Oh, they are recovered, so this is good. My son uh, is actually going to get married in November, which uh, we're looking forward to that. So this is a good time. Oh, wonderful. And getting, uh, are you doing the wedding or somebody else? Uh, I'm going to be doing the sermon. So uh, we'll do that. The the pastor, the home congregation of the bride, will actually preside over the wedding itself, the ceremony, and then I will preach the sermon. Well, wonderful. Well, good for you. That is a, a true joy. I know my father did, uh, you know, did the whole wedding for my my wife and I, and, and what a blessing that is, and means a lot not only to to the people, the the family, but also to those who are sitting in the pews. So God bless you in that. And pastor, as we um, I look at the scriptures today, especially Ecclesiastes, can you begin our time and ask for the Lord's blessings and prayer? Yes, yes, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Dear Lord God, Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, who is the one who came to save us from our sins and to deliver us from death, O Lord. You are the one who cares for us in this life with all of our toils and our struggles. And we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we would see wonderful things in your word, and that you would instill in our hearts a wisdom from above and not the wisdom of the world. Be with us, O Lord, as we study your word given to us as a gift. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Reminder to you, our listeners, we are starting a new book. So here's an opportunity that if you have any questions about Ecclesiastes, 
to send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. And this is something we can continually try to answer as we go through this book of wisdom. So drop us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. So Pastor Ketchelmeyer, we are going to begin looking at Ecclesiastes as if we're in a plane at 30,000 feet, trying to see everything we can and hopefully clarifying when we get closer to verse by verse throughout Ecclesiastes. So Pastor, where do you want to begin? Well, I think where we really want to start is just with the understanding of wisdom literature in the Holy Scripture. The reason why we want to start there is because it's a little bit different than what we might expect. Uh, When we're looking at wisdom literature, uh, this is God who is giving us his word for meditation and contemplation, that we would be slow to speak and quick to listen. And so when you have this wisdom book, sometimes it might not approach the subjects in the way that we, we might think that they should be approached, but it's in the way of wisdom. And so it's looking at the themes of this life that we live in a fallen world that's falling apart. So we look into these uh, themes that we see in our own human experience, uh, talking about the toil of labor, uh, talking about the earthly pursuits that are futile, uh, talking about uh, vanity of prosperity and just uh, going and seeking after the wind and the one who loves wealth will never really be fully satisfied, just kind of looking at these issues that we face in this fallen world and the reality that all humanity is facing. And we're really looking at the suffering. We're looking at sin, which is all universal. And we're looking at death itself in the judgment of God. But now sometimes when we look at the wisdom literature in the Scripture, uh, those who are outside the Church might just say, oh, well, this is no different than a Greek philosophy, like an Epicurean idea of, of just the purpose in life is just pleasure in this life, that you are to eat, drink, and marry, for tomorrow we might die. Mm. And so an, an Epicurean, kind of an idea of, of this suffering in this life, that, well, as long as you exist, then death doesn't exist. Or, or maybe even like a, a Greek philosophical pursuit of wisdom as a virtue, in Stoicism, where you just say that, well, death is not evil, it's just natural, it's just part of the way life is. But in, in Scripture, we, we always want to see this in the context of the fullness of God's will, God's revealed will, and God's promises that are all found in the person and work of Jesus. So when we look at this wisdom literature in particular here, we're trying to find meaning and purpose to life, but it's not a how-to book. It's not a seminar on success, nor a 12-step plan or program. It's not encouraging you to just live your best life now type of a thing. This book, as wisdom literature, is given to us by God so that we would receive Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, and the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of wisdom working in our hearts through this Word, that we would see this as a a call to faith, living by faith and not by sight. And we we never want to disconnect this from the person and work of Christ. So yes, we see the seriousness of sin, we see suffering and dying, but we know that Jesus is the only answer to the question. 
So it's not about having all the answers, but it's rather knowing the one who is the answer, who is Jesus. So wisdom is not just a virtue that we're pursuing, but wisdom is actually a person, Christ himself, incarnate wisdom, who enters into our humanity to suffer and to die with us and for us, so that Jesus himself knows personally suffering and dying. He knows what it's like to be part of this fallen world. So wisdom literature here is not about a pursuit of what should I do, but rather it's really a contemplation on what has God done in his Son for us, for our salvation. So when we talk about judgment, I mean, we're talking about sin. We're we're talking about death. And so sometimes in this this pursuit of wisdom here in Ecclesiastes, it might seem like it's just merely some kind of a philosophical endeavor where life is meaningless and there's there's suffering and it just is all vanity and it just doesn't make any sense at all. But in wisdom literature, we want to see this where we see Jesus at work in this life for us. I mean, to put it in kind of a strange perspective, or I, I should say a perspective that might be helpful, but the strangeness of, of Luther's own wisdom comment to Melanchthon in his letter, where Luther says, sin boldly. And I mean, that sounds very strange, and of course it can be taken out of context and just used as a bumper sticker slogan. But when Luther is giving wisdom to Melanchthon, when Melanchthon is, is kind of wondering how he is to, to walk in this life in the midst of persecution, and trying to proclaim the gospel and what is right in God's sight? Well, Luther tells them, sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, because you know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world. And so that's a wisdom kind of nugget that Luther himself is giving to Melanchthon. Now, just in common speech or common language, we might not talk that way, but this is the way of wisdom literature, where we we stop, we pause, we listen, we learn from God's Word. Uh, these questions of meditation and contemplation, where we know that God is God and He's in control. Now, in this book of Ecclesiastes, you, you, you do notice that in this literature, you, you never use the divine name Yahweh. And so you might say, well, isn't this just like Greek philosophy? They're not telling us anything unique to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, or to Moses and the Exodus about there's going to be a prophet like Moses that we are to listen to. But I think what we want to do here is see this in the same way as the context of the Ten Commandments in the small catechism. Now, if you just took that one article, that one chief part of the Ten Commandments out, And you just said, well, look, the Ten Commandments just say we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, without using the name of Jesus and without talking about the forgiveness of sin. But we know that when Luther is teaching us about the Ten Commandments, it is in connection, and it is related to this whole promise that we have in Jesus our Savior. So we'll see the same thing in wisdom literature here in Ecclesiastes, where you do use the word God or Elohim, in a more generic way, because this is the shared reality of all humanity. This suffering, this death, this toil, the futility of these earthly pursuits 
And it just all seems like maybe the Epicurean way of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you might die. Or just the Stoic way of, well, death is natural. It's just going to happen. It's not really evil. So therefore, just pursue wisdom in this life. And that's where, when we look at this, and go back even further to simplicity, when we talk about wisdom literature in the Old Testament, what books are we speaking about? Well, what we want to look at is, uh, of course, uh, Proverbs, uh, the Song of uh, Solomon, the Song of Songs. Uh, even the Psalms themselves is, is wisdom literature. And so there's a lot of questions of contemplation in the Psalms themselves, where you'll have kind of this, this emphasis on uh, asking a question to God, but of course, coming back and knowing the answer, because the answer is always in Jesus, or even the book of Job itself. So it's in these, these books, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs, and Job, you're dealing with the nitty-gritty in this life. You're dealing with the suffering, and you're even dealing with the kind of asking the really hard questions to God, crying out to God and saying, I know you've made a promise, but I look around and it doesn't seem like your promise is happening. Mm. And so we're taught in wisdom literature to ask the question, but yet to rejoice in the answer of it's Jesus that we are learning to live not by sight, but by faith, and always coming back to faith in the promise, so that we understand Jesus himself is the very wisdom of God. I mean, in 1 Corinthians, you have that whole language where Paul's talking about how in this life you have the wisdom of the world, Uh, but God, of course, gives to us a different wisdom. In fact, Christ Jesus became wisdom for us from God. He became our sanctification, our righteousness, our redemption. And then, of course, Paul kind of calls out all those who are wise and says, let the wise, you know, argue their case. But God, of course, is going to destroy this wisdom of, of the world. So Paul will say in First Corinthians chapter 2 that he didn't come with this wisdom of the world, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And it's in the message of the cross, the gospel, that's the power of salvation. And so God gives to us this wisdom that is found in Jesus, wisdom incarnate, and then he pours out the spirit of wisdom upon us so that we would be spiritual and we would begin to understand these things. But as a mystery, we're always learning and always growing. The natural person, of course, the natural man does not accept these things. Uh, that they don't, the natural man does not know the Spirit of God, who is the wisdom, uh, Spirit of Wisdom, or Jesus, who is the Son of God, the Wisdom of God Himself. So if we do not find Jesus, we do not find wisdom. Exactly. So in the Scripture, what makes this different than any of these Greek philosophies? I mean, so when the Greek philosophies say the answer to life is just it's logic— which is the Greek word would be logos, or as we would say, the word. So in John's Gospel, John talks in that language and says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, the eternal logic, the eternal reason. And so now we have something that, that's kind of used in that Greek culture, in that pursuit uh, of the logos, the reason, or Sophia, wisdom. And so in the wisdom literature, we're using this language in the way that we understand that Jesus is wisdom incarnate. He's the one who is greater than Solomon, who 
who was the wisest of the wise in the Old Testament. But we're waiting for one who is the true son of David, not Solomon, but yet Jesus, born of the Virgin, who came to suffer, who came to toil, and who came to die for us so that we would be justified, that is, righteous before God. So as we go now to the book itself, Ecclesiastes, to kind of go to the who, what, where, why type of dynamics, uh, you know, who wrote it, when did they write it, uh, other kind of background and information that you have. Well, what we want to look at is the, the author being Solomon himself. I mean, so that's the king. This is the son of David, the one who, of course, is going to build the temple, who's going to dedicate the temple. And so there's a couple of things that we want to look at with Solomon in his life, that he's the wise one. I mean, again, in First Kings chapter 3, this is where God is asking Solomon to ask God for gifts. And, and then this is where Solomon doesn't want the gift of riches, but he, what he wants is he wants the gift of, as we say in English, an understanding mind. But really, in, in the, the Hebrew, you're talking about a hearing heart one that allows Solomon to hear, to be silent, to learn from God, to listen. And so God gives him this gift of wisdom, this hearing heart that allows him to be able to discern between good and evil, enable them to govern the people, to judge over the people as ruler. So this is Solomon, who is the wise one. And, you know, Solomon's uh, reign begins around 971 B.C. And, and we see this in the very first book, or I should say the very first chapter and verse of our book, Ecclesiastes, where it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this word preacher, it doesn't literally say Solomon, but it says the preacher. And uh, sometimes you, you'll just hear the Hebrew Kohelet, the, uh, uh, that he's the one who assembles people, the assembler, the one who gathers people so that he can speak these words of wisdom. And so he's the preacher. He's preaching wisdom to the people. I mean, this is all rooted in this, uh, this Hebrew word, kahal, which is to assemble an assembly, or, of course, the, the noun form, which is an assembly, which is also kahal. Uh, and we see this in particular in First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is praying as they bring the Ark of the Covenant to the temple. So in First Kings chapter 8, you see that Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes. So this is what Solomon is doing. He's doing this action of the Quahelis, the one who assembles an assembly so that he can teach. In that same prayer of Solomon in First Kings chapter 8, you see that Solomon, he stands and he blesses the assembly of Israel. So again, you have the verbal word, kahal, and you also have the noun of that same root, the assembly. And so he's the assembler, if you will, of the assembly to gather to hear words of wisdom. Now, what's also interesting in that prayer in 1 Kings 8 of Solomon at the temple itself this is where Solomon prays, and he directly, specifically says, Oh, Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you. So again, we have the connection of the promises of Yahweh, 
that's that confession of faith, that it's not just any God, it's not just the generic God, but it is the God who made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who came down to Egypt to deliver them out of suffering in Egypt, in the oppression of uh, the Pharaoh, the tyrant, and he delivered them and brought them back to the promised land. And so you see that connection there in this, this prayer. So in First Kings chapter 8, you see where he says, there is no God like you in heaven or above or on earth beneath who keeps covenant and shows this heaven, this uh, steadfast mercy, compassion, love, loyalty to your servant. And that's never in the abstract. It's always connected to his word of promise. And that promise is always rooted in the promise of the seed who's going to crush the serpent's head, the one who will overcome sin and death, the one who will take upon flesh and will suffer in toil and labor but not in vain. He will work to win us for God for eternity. So you see this when Solomon is saying there is no God like you. Now in Ecclesiastes, he uses that more generic uh, Hebrew word Elohim, which is God, like for instance in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, down at verses 12 and 13, he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out, by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the sons of Adam to be busy with. And so you see immediately in that first chapter, kind of looking at this this whole of life, that God, who is the creator of all things, he gives to us this life into all the sons of Adam. Well, from Adam, we inherit the toil, the labor, and we are cursed in this life. You know, cursed is the ground. Now, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to toil, you're going to struggle, you're going to wrestle with the dirt of the earth. And so here again, we see Solomon applying this to the hearing heart, that his heart is seeking and searching after wisdom. That God has given this gift to him, that uh, we have this promise. The promise of Solomon, who is the son of David, the promises that were given to David, that he would have a kingdom that would not end, that the son of David would reign and rule from the throne. So this is the same author, the same person, the same son of David, Solomon, who is teaching these same things in that prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. In in fact, in 1 Kings chapter 8, at verse 46, this is where he says, there is no one who does not sin that he takes the universal problem of sin to all humanity. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And so in Ecclesiastes 7, he takes that same teaching that he has in the prayer at the dedication, where you have the the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the temple. And this is in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So it's that same understanding that this lot in life that we all have is there's no one is righteous by their own deeds, by their own active, achieved works on earth. They cannot make themselves righteous in God's sight. And, And so in this book of Ecclesiastes, we have that same teaching about justification that Paul will then dig deep into in Romans chapter 3. 
where Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 3, saying, none is righteous as it is written. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I mean, this is that same kind of wisdom literature that we understand the reality of sin in the condition that we are all living. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, Paul will then end on this note and says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we're going to pick up on that theme of fear of God, because Solomon is going to talk about this. He'll bring it to a close at the end of this book in chapter 12. But when Paul is digging deep into the wisdom literature, I mean, he's he's splicing together a whole bunch of these psalms, a whole bunch of these wisdom pearls and nuggets that Paul is trying to address the reality that even all of the philosophers, the thinkers, the wise of the world, those who have knowledge, those who have some type of understanding, are all looking around and saying, we can't make sense of this life. What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? What are we doing here? How did we get here? Where are we going? I mean, all these universal questions. And then Paul, in Romans chapter 3, he gets down to verse 28, and then he defines for us what humanity truly is. And so that's our, our, our passage here for the Reformation, you know, this being October, and we're looking towards uh, Reformation Sunday, that in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul now defines what it means to be a man. So what it means to be a man is not to be one who is dead in sin, but rather we hold that a man is one who's justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That you understand that a man, a true man, is one who is justified by faith in Jesus, who is the true man the one who suffered, the one who died, who was handed over for our sins, but then he rose again for our justification. So this is going to come together in the whole book of Ecclesiastes uh, from the beginning to the end. When you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, we have that famous line that we're all familiar with, which is just vanities of vanities, says the preacher, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. So without Christ, yes, it's all vanity. Without the Holy Spirit, yes, it's, it's all vanity. But the whole purpose of the Scripture and this book itself is to give wisdom to us by giving us Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, by pouring out the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Wisdom the one who opens our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to believe. So when Solomon opens up in chapter 1 with all his vanities, he goes and he circles around to the very end in chapter 12, and he comes back to the same point in verse 8. Vanity is a vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. He comes to the same point. But the nuance then is that here's the kicker, that without Jesus, it's all vanity. Without the Holy Spirit, all vanity. But God wants to give us the Son and the Spirit so that we would believe. So this is the end of the matter. Then Solomon kind of comes to a conclusion in chapter 12 at verses 13 and 14 and says this, All has been heard, and so now you fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. Fear God 
can keep his commandments. Now remember, Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, no one fears God. So wisdom is teaching us what it means to fear God and keep his commandments. And, and I'll get into that in a second, but maybe there's some thoughts or comments you might have to kind of glue all this together. Well, the first thing I want to say, and then we'll have to take our break, is just this beginning when you think of wisdom, you'd think wisdom would start with advice. That's how we would talk about it today. Oh, I've done this for a long time. I've got some advice for you. But he begins with vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity, basically. All is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, you'll hear from others. And so that's what right away, like you said, it, it points us to the fear of God, which is God's work, and it points us away from ourselves, unlike all other wisdom, which points us to ourselves. And so right now, though, Pastor, we better take our break. We are getting a, a broad overview of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying, uh, beginning our study of Ecclesiastes with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. As I said, we're doing a broad overview as we begin this wonderful book because there is so much that we could touch on during our time. And so, Pastor, you spoke about vanity, and that's really what the first two chapters captures throughout this time. Living wisely, vanity of toil, vanity of this, vanity of that. Anything else? Uh, because then the famous chapter comes in in chapter 3. So anything else you want to touch on as we speak about vanity? Well, we, we do see that in the first two chapters, this is Solomon, who is the wise one. And he is laying this out that he has sought after wisdom. He's been given this heart that is hearing, that listens, that learns from God's Word. And it's his pursuit of, of wisdom. And then he kind of gets to the end and says, well... <laughs> All his vanities of vanities. Because a pursuit of wisdom without the wisdom of God, Christ, without the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit, is just in vain. I mean, like the Greek philosophers, whether you're a Stoic or an Epicurean, I mean, it is all just in vain. You might as well just eat, drink, and uh, be merry, for tomorrow we might die. And as long as we exist, that's all that counts. But there's more to it than that. And so he gives to us his pursuit, and then he gives us these whole chapters 3 through 12. It's just all these pearls of wisdom, just kind of all these things that's kind of looking at these things. So looking at the toil, looking at the pursuit of wealth and money, uh, looking at uh, death, that apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from Christ, death is, <laughs> for a human being, no different than an animal. At least that's what you see with your eyes. I mean... The animal came from the dust, Adam comes from the dust, and then they just die and go back to the dirt. 
So what's the difference if you just see in the experience of this earthly realm? And so without Christ, without the Holy Spirit, it's just a pursuit of, of nothingness. But this book in wisdom wants us to stop and to pause and to be silent and to learn, to meditate, to contemplate on God's promises and the reality that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And that's the judgment you get to the, the end uh, of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, that we're all going to come under judgment. Uh, so the last verse, verse 4, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That This is the reality, that there is sin, there is death, and there is judgment. But we have an advocate with the Father. And so this is how we want to look at that in note where it says that we are to fear God and keep his commandments. It's not apart from Jesus. It's not apart from the Holy Spirit. In fact, you cannot fear God without the Holy Spirit. You cannot keep his commandments uh, without the Holy Spirit. So as Lutherans in this month, you know, October, we're looking towards uh, Reformation Sunday. This is what we talk about in the Apology, that when we talk about a man is one who is justified by faith in Jesus alone, apart from the works of the law, that that's our definition of man, it doesn't mean that we tell people, eat, drink, and be merry, and do whatever you want. The pursuit of pleasure is all that really matters. Uh, Just have at it, a license, a licentiousness. No, no, we say that with this doctrine of justification, the chief article of the Christian faith about being righteous in God's sight, is this foundational teaching that we see here in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we see throughout the whole of Scripture, that we, when we hold to this teaching of justification, we are actually teaching how to properly fear God and keep His commandments. And this is the way that I want us to look at fear of God in the Old Testament. I mean, like Luther will say in the Ten Commandments, we should fear and love God so that. But we want to look at fear in this way. What it means to be a believing God-fearer is that we come to the understanding of our condition in original sin, and that we cannot, by our own efforts, make God merciful. We cannot gain God's favor by what we do. Righteousness before God is not achieved by our activity. Instead, the righteousness before God that He gives to us is a gift. It is passive. It's received by faith. So when we talk about a believer being one who fears God, the believer knows that he stands before God, and he knows he cannot stand based upon his own righteousness. So if you stand before God with your own deeds that have been done, well, then you fear God's wrath. There's nothing you can do. Not at all. And so here you have this proper understanding of the fear of God is this trust that it's not your righteousness before God that makes God pleased with you. Instead, it is Jesus, the advocate, who is the mediator, the one who makes us pleasing to God on account of his works, what he's done. And so by faith, we are accepted on account of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we're accepted, and then we begin to keep his commandments. So in the Apology, Melanchthon is saying this, hey, we actually are teaching properly that we should keep His commandments, and then we even teach you how to keep His commandments. That in 
faith with Christ being redeemed, being regenerated with the work of the Holy Spirit, we begin to have these new inward impulses. We begin to have this outward obedience. We begin to keep the commandments. But yet the incipient keeping of the commandments, this beginning starting to, that's never perfect, never complete, is not counted against us. So our failure to perfectly keep the commandments, uh, both outwardly and inwardly, is not imputed to us. It's imputed to Christ. He's the one who knew no sin. He alone is the one who perfectly kept the law. But yet our failure to keep the law is imputed to him. It's not counted against us. And then the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us, counted as if it was our own. And so now... With Christ, we stand before the Father. So being justified by faith, we now have peace in the heart, in the conscience, knowing that for the sake of Jesus, we have a God who is pleased with us because of Christ. And so if you understand that in this life we live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, we know that it's not what we do that makes God happy, per se, but it's what Christ has done. And now we are free to begin to do what God would have us do in our vocation. So now we can enjoy all the gifts of God that Solomon is teaching us in Ecclesiastes. That God gives us these gifts, and he gives us a vocation, a station, a place in life where we can then take these gifts that have been given to us, and we can be a benefit to our neighbor. And we can have a heart that's filled with joy, knowing that not There's nothing here that is just futile. All of this is done in Christ, who did not toil and labor in vain, but has done all of this for us and continues to be with us in this life of suffering, in the life of toil, in the life of futility, in the life of vanity, in the life of all these earthly pursuits of pleasure and things that are before our eyes. So as we look at this, I'm trying to gather my gather my my head around this because you're you're relaying it out of this idea of once you have Christ, you have wisdom, and then we're able to look at the wisdom and to live in freedom. Is that the kind of language you would use? Yes, mm-hmm. we are now free. We are set at liberty, but that doesn't mean that it's a license now to sin. I mean, so the gospel message is not go and sin all you want. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> By no means. Message. By no means, Paul says. <laughs> Did I lose and you? so oh, in you. this okay. life, we're living this identity as the baptized, that we have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer us who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. And it's Christ who is working through us for the benefit of others. And so, Pastor, I really want to highlight one aspect because we will have common statements that we'll have from Ecclesiastes. And chapter 3, I think, is, is one of those that many people know. And it really, you've laid it out well, and I wanted to hear your thoughts with the broad strokes of Ecclesiastes. This is chapter 3, when it talks about a time for everything. And for everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And, you know, people will sing songs about this. We will use this for themes. We will will quote it sometimes when something happens in our lives. How would you, in looking at broad strokes, look at chapter 3, and how does that kind of open the door to other understandings of this book? 
also, uh, again, in this, this wisdom, that there's the, the concept that we have in our life. You know, you go to a bookstore and you say, where's the self-help section? And, of course, uh, the cash register, the, the, the attendant there would probably be of most help to you to not show you where it is unless you try to find it by yourself. <laughs> because that's the emphasis. It's a self-help thing. So you should go and find the book yourself <laughs> because it's all about you and you have the power to do these things. Um, and, and so we have this, this common understanding that wisdom is I'm going to go to a seminar and the seminar is going to teach me how to do things better, and then my life will be better. So it's always an em- emphasis on what do I need to do. I mean, in fact, you have the, the 12, cell, uh, 12, step, 12 step program where you come to the realization that, uh, well, there's a higher power and I need a higher power, and then you pray that serenity prayer, you, you know, the, that classic serenity prayer, uh, that uh, you can't change these things in essence. I mean, you're just... Uh, the things you can change, well, work on them. But the things you can change, well, just accept it. I mean, that's kind of this whole idea of this, well, it's just how life flows. And so if you just do these things in this way, you have a strategy, you have a plan, you have all of this. It's about what you do. But wisdom literature in this wisdom thought is not about what you do. It's about contemplation and meditation upon what God has done for us and his son the one who comes to save us from ourselves, our own sin. So like in Ecclesiastes 3, where you're talking about all these different things, these different times, there's a season for everything, and here this happens and that happens, and we kind of go through this cycle, and here we are again at the the time of fall, and then it's winter, and you go through these cycles, and we're at it again, uh, uh, like the, the coronavirus, it just never ends, it's a circle, it just keeps going on. But it, it's all about, well, what do I need to do? But it's in Ecclesiastes 3, where at verse 14, it says, I perceived, okay, so now I, 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 I see these things correctly, that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. And so you're getting back to this understanding of fear God. Uh, that's the teaching here. Okay, fear God. Because it's not about standing before God and uh, telling God how God should run the universe. It's not about you teaching God how to be wise. Uh, It's not about you standing before God based upon what you have done. So when you fear, you fear that if you stand before God based on your own works, you're toast. Uh, God is a consuming fire, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And our sin provokes God to anger. But when you understand this, this this fear here, that you can't stand before God with you what you've done, it then leads the way to properly then love God and to trust in God above all things. So you hear his word. So what he has done endures forever, not what I've done. What I've done is temporary. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And so this whole fleeting life, this is this whole kind of temporary nature of this earthly life that we live in, that, well, it is, it's it's temporal. It's temporal. It's not eternal. But so therefore, we see each day as a gift from God. And here's where you have a difference between kind of like an earthly prudence. An earthly prudence is this this idea of, of having the skills to to work with the gifts and the abilities that you have for your own self-interest, so for your own self-preservation. 
uh, you're a manager uh, managing these things, but you're doing this for yourself. That's earthly, earthly prudence. But what we want with this heavenly wisdom, we want a heavenly prudence that understands that, number one, we can't trust ourselves. Uh, we, we, by nature, are sinful and unclean. By nature, we are enemies of God. We despise His wisdom. We want to be the teachers of God. Uh, the fool in his heart says there is no God. There's no one to judge me on what I want to do. But we want this heavenly prudence where first and primarily we understand that we have been conceived and born in sin, and we cannot free ourselves from our own sinful condition, that we need someone who will come and free us, which of course is Christ, which is the wisdom incarnate. So wisdom itself is not merely talking about suffering and acting and toiling and laboring and dying. Wisdom himself, who's a person, takes upon flesh and blood so that he can toil and labor and suffer and die. But he does it for us. He redeems us in our body so that now in this life we've been redeemed. We've been baptized. We are a new creation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is working this this new creation in us, these new impulses, these new thoughts, the new way of thinking, the new way of acting, the new way of walking, and we're beginning to walk in newness of life. So with this, this heavenly prudence, we look at our lives and we were trying to, in our conscience, and our heart, we're trying to determine what's the best thing that we can do in our bodies for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. So this whole Ecclesiastes, again, is going back to, well, God has placed you on this earth. He's placed you in a place. He's placed you to be of service to your neighbor and to give glory to him in your bodies that have been redeemed by him, created by him, redeemed by him, and sanctified by him. So this whole sanctified life is life that's lived by faith and not by sight. And this really is helpful because if you read Ecclesiastes, hoping for more wisdom, what you feel like you'd leave with is a lot more despair. I mean, if, if, you, if you see this outside of Christ being your wisdom, I feel like it's, it's just more despair because not only all the things that I value and see myself as needing wisdom for, whether it is the toil I do or the wisdom I'm trying to attain or whatever it might be, wealth, um, providing for my family, those kind of things. He's telling me that's all vanity. It's just striving after the wind. And when he says, even fear God, then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, how, am I fearing God enough? The whole thing without having Christ as our wisdom, as the interpretive key of this whole book, it's quite despairing. Any thoughts on that? That's As I've been reading this, I'm like, wow, that, that would be kind of difficult if you did not see Christ at the center. Yeah, so this is the thing that uh, in the Old Testament, you know, when we look at the Ten Commandments, and Luther in the Catechism, again, says we should fear and love God, so that, so that. And you get to the close of the Ten Commandments, and well, what does it mean to fear God? That we fear His wrath, that we fear His wrath. What does it mean to love God? That, that you would begin to love God in your heart when you are beginning to rejoice in His Word, beginning to rejoice in His actions what he has done uh, for us. And so this is why John, in his epistle, can say that that love casts out fear. And so it, it's not fear apart from Christ. So as a believer, 
we have a fear, a proper fear of God, understanding that we cannot stand by our own righteousness, but as a believer, we can also properly understand that now being justified by faith, we have access to the Father uh, through the Son in the Holy Spirit, that God is at work in us and that we would, we would actually begin to, to rest from our labors, rest from our toil, and receive His works. Uh, what he's doing in our heart, renewing our heart, that he is reviving our heart, that he's setting our eyes upon his son. So the Father says, behold, my son, listen to him. The Holy Spirit is saying, behold, the son, listen to him. And that's the the work of God here. It's focused on the person and work of Jesus to save us from ourselves. And, And so that fear is is a, a proper fear, understanding the person and work of Christ. It's a proper love, understanding the love that God has given to us in this sacrificial death. You know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that this is the love of God, this agape love that God himself gives, so that God first loved us, and then we begin to love others as those who are in Christ who are being renewed. And so it's not just uh, like, you know, in the generic world, when they talk about the generic God and they say the generic God is love, what they always mean by that is God is erotic love. I mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what they really mean. They mean God is erotic love, therefore you should engage in erotic love too. And so they change the whole message to a license of licentiousness, to go and seek pleasure, specifically sexual pleasure in the body uh, that is in direct animosity with what God's commandments say. Uh, You know, specifically the sixth commandment, you should not commit adultery. That we have a redeemed body so that we should not take our bodies and uh, then do things that would desecrate the temple that God himself has, has restored for us in our bodies, redeemed us, that he now dwells within us. So all of this is, is the focus on, on Christ. So it, it's not apart from Christ. It's the focus on the work of the Holy Spirit through this Word. It's not apart from the Spirit of Wisdom. So you have to have uh, wisdom, uh, the wisdom of God, which is the Son, the Word of God, the Eternal One, and you have to have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Wisdom who proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And so as we look at this, we have about five minutes left in our time here, Pastor, and looking for, is there other themes that you want to highlight as we very well establish where is wisdom? Wisdom is in Christ, and throughout that is the interpretive understanding of that comfort there and the freedom that we have. Other themes that you want to highlight in these last few minutes? Well, I mean, you've got all kinds of pearls of wisdom. I mean, and I, I think that as the weeks go on, you're going to unfold all these different pearls. And that's where, again, we, we need to understand that this is a wisdom literature. Uh, and this is why it's always rooted in Proverbs chapter 8, which is wisdom, Solomon's book. Because in Proverbs chapter 8, we have wisdom himself, the person, the eternal son, the eternal logos. Uh, the eternal Sophia, if you will, the eternal wisdom. And he says that Yahweh possessed me, begot me. I mean, that's really, it's the language of labor. It's the language of birthing. It's the language of being eternally begotten from the Father at the beginning of his work. He's the first. He's there in the beginning. He was beside the Father like a 
craftsman, a master workman, and it was his daily delight rejoicing. And he's rejoicing in humanity, what he's, what he's made, what he's brought forth. And so he's the one who seeks out and saves the lost. So in Proverbs 8, this is wisdom who's calling and says, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life. And whoever obtains me, which is Jesus, obtains favor from Yahweh. So that's the wisdom literature. The wisdom is always setting our eyes on the eternal wisdom of God, who was there in the beginning, who always was. There never was a time when God didn't have wisdom. And so we rejoice in that wisdom of God who becomes incarnate. So that's why when you look at this Ecclesiastes book, and it's talking about the toil and the suffering and the futility and all this vanity and these earthly pursuits, and it, it seems like it's just, well, this is just doubt and despair, and it's just uh, death, and man, this is horrible. But that's exactly the point, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that the eternal wisdom took upon flesh, that he came to tabernacle with us to win us from sin and death through his suffering and his death, taking upon our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And so for the last few minutes... As we look at Ecclesiastes and we start to read this and start to dig in, and, and for the Christian, what would be your encouragement of why someone should read Ecclesiastes? For a member or someone that you meet or someone that calls you, whatever it might be, what would be your encouragement? Why should I read Ecclesiastes? Yeah, well, you're reading Ecclesiastes because, remember, it, it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of this knowledge. And so you're reading this, and you're, you're contemplating these things in life that you see around. And so it gives us voice to these words uh, of what we, we see in our perceptions, and then it always takes us back to rooted in the promises of God. So that, again, it's a call to increased faith in the promises of God, call to the increased need of the mediator, the one mediator between man and God, which is Christ our Lord. And so when you look at the wisdom of God, you understand that there's never going to be a point in this life where you become so wise in your own eyes that you've got everything figured out, that you're always going to need Jesus. And so even when you start to look at some of these things in Ecclesiastes, and it's just like, well, all of this is a pursuit. You know, I've tried to seek wisdom, and look at this, it just didn't work out. That's the point. Yeah, if you pursue this by yourself, if you keep trying to learn, you keep trying to become wiser, uh, become more knowledgeable, a Mr. Know-it-all type of a thing, that you still need Jesus. So you, you go through this wisdom, and you understand that this is the language of humanity. And, and I, I think that it would even help you to see that in the Scripture, it doesn't shy away from sin and suffering and death. Instead, the Scripture itself puts this right before our eyes, but gives us the answer. And the answer is always Jesus. I mean, you go back to uh, the Sunday school answer for the kids. Always Jesus. And so it's always pointing your eyes back to Jesus. So you read uh, Ecclesiastes, and you look out your window and say, I see the same thing. 
Right. It, it seems like the rich keep getting richer. The more powerful become more powerful. It, it seems like those who are poor and oppressed just become poorer and more oppressed. I mean, you, you look around and you try to make sense of this life, but the answer is Jesus. It's not having all these answers. It's knowing the answer with Christ our Lord. Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Los Alamos, New Mexico, starting us off on the right foot with Ecclesiastes. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, thank you for giving us the gifts. Oh, it was excellent to be here. Saints of our Lord, Solomon reflected on his life, and he gives us Christ, because where is true wisdom found? In the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. When we start there, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and that fear of the Lord knows that it is Christ who has done it all for us. I'm excited to dig into the rest of this wonderful book, and I'm excited because Dr. Ketchemeyer has started us off on the right foot. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. <music>